welcome to episode 86 of the Swapflex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. Woo. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swapflex. It's my birthday today. Happy birthday, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I was born in 86, as we just discovered when we said there was episode 86. We play, you playing this whole thing out. <laughs> I kind of did, because we're talking about hardcore pornography all episode. On your birthday, which is <laughs> such a Brandon topic. Do you have like a fascination with like porn, like commercially made pornography? What do you like? On like an industry standpoint. I think it's a fascinating industry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Have you ever heard of the Rialto Report? No, I don't think so. It's something that's gotten me more into it, but it's this podcast and website that interviews like porn stars and porn filmmakers from the 60s through the 80s. Okay. A lot of them are from New York and it's just like this fascinating like world of underground filmmakers. I think I actually did see... A clip from that where apparently a lot of the porn stars like make a lot of their money escorting. They make more money escorting than they do on the actual films. The films are kind of like advertisement for their side hustle, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I th- that might be a newer thing too. Like I remember in the 80s, people would make a lot of money stripping. Right. So yeah, I guess it's having a side hustle is always kind of like a constant. No, the industry is like, it's very fascinating. It's an illegal art form, or it was at the time. You could project the stuff, but you couldn't film it. Uh, and there's all these like weird laws for obscenity. And they're always pushing these like censorship boundaries and making these like temporary products they thought no one would care about in like 40 years. And they would just like disappear as soon as they left the like cheap grindhouse theaters. And now people study them in these like academic contexts and... I know. It's always fascinating when you find like a whole subworld of uh, film or books or something that you've never s- discovered before. I feel like it's like something I barely know anything about. Well, and also what I find interesting about is just all the different subgenres that have popped up. Like it's gotten more into niche things where you just realize like, oh, people are turned on by a weird array of yeah. things that I had no idea. But even now, like those, like the commercial porn you're talking about now, like, it's not like it was in the 70s and the 80s when they thought that this was going to break into the mainstream. So, like, people were making, like, whole films with, like, plots and, uh, like, high production values and, like, yeah, arty, like, experiments that a lot of directors would then go on and use for, like, horror films. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of overlap in, like, eight, uh, 70s porn and 70s horror production. And there kind of was a time where it almost broke through. Like, it was, like, a sophisticated thing for these, like, uptown New Yorkers to go out on like a date night and get all dressed up and go see a porn movie together as a couple. Well, and that's, what's interesting about one of the movies we're talking about today. Hardcore, just seeing this area of Los Angeles, just porn shop after porn shop, after peep show, after massage parlor, just all like in a row. I know New York had the same thing to like its own district. And just seems like it's such a cool time capsule because you can't imagine that now you walk around like New York and it's very kind of corporatized and yeah. the Times Square used to be kind of like a very, very seedy place for these kind of establishments. And that was a deliberate thing that Mayor Giuliani did. Yeah, he's going to clean up the city, but it's like Disney World now. But yeah, it just like I think it was at a point of almost being legitimized. Well, before we fall too far down the porno rabbit hole, which I am very much looking forward to doing, uh, <laughs> are there any other movies you've seen recently, whether or not they're porno related, that you're enjoying? Well, there's two I wanted to touch on briefly. Um, so I watched uh, Beach Bum. Oh, I love that movie. Which I fucking love. So that made me want to go back. And there's a few Harmony and Corinne movies that I had missed. And so I'm going back and watching those. But man, like I watched Spring Breakers. And then right after I watched Beach Bum, it was such a good double feature. And it's touching on a lot of the same themes, but in a different way, tonally kind of. I think those two and Gummo are the only three I like love. I think those are like his three most solid pictures. Yeah, I didn't didn't really care for Julian Donkey Boy or Trash Humpers. I thought it was very weird. I haven't seen Mr. Lonely. That's the one I haven't seen. We did Trash Humpers on this podcast before and I did not enjoy it. It's like a waste of time. It felt like it was. Yeah. Yeah. But no, Beach Bum is so much fun. dude. It's just and it's I love how loose the structure it is. It's just Matthew McConaughey just stoned, just chilling, um, hanging out with Snoop Dogg, hanging out (laughs) with Jimmy Buffett. You got Jonah Hill in there with this ridiculous southern accent you've got martin lawrence as a 
dolphin tour guide. Probably one of my favorite characters. One of the best sequences of the year. Martin yeah. Lawrence's bit in that film. It's just so much fun, dude. Yeah. Um, I don't think it got a lot of praise when it came out because it is like very loose and episodic and his character doesn't really have an arc. He just sort of kind of like the dude from Big Lebowski. He's like has this philosophy on life. I think he's a lot more um, malignant than the dude. Yeah. There's like a really dark energy to how entitled he is and how he just like floats through life fucking with people and like ruining lives. And then people are like, oh, that's just Moondog. That's just how he is. And see, I read an interview with him with Harmony Karim where he kind of alluded to basically that's how he sees himself as like the beach bum character. Yeah. These studios keep giving him all this money to make movies and he, he just feels like kind of a fuck up that is coasting through life and just wants to like get high. And they touch on this in the movie. Like people are think he's a genius and they keep giving him money and he feels like he's not worthy of it kind of. So that was an interesting element to the, the story or subtext. But anyway, I, I just thought it was like super fun. And I was like, so along for the ride and so entertained the entire time. You know what it reminded me of? Hmm. It's like an art film version of like a 90s Adam Sandler comedy. Right. It feels like a very familiar commercial style of comedy from like when we were kids, except everything about it is just dark and still has that Harmony Korean like looseness and, you know, stubbornly unstructured time. And watching a lot of his movies in a row, like he's more like a like collage painter. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, dealing like clear narrative it, it's very like cut and paste kind of and i like that like he has a very unique style beach bum if you haven't seen it check it out it's it's a blast yeah i saw it in the theater with a lot of people who seemed very confused um because it was marketed kind of like as a stoner comedy and it's not exactly that and what you're saying with the adam sandler thing too you know adam sandler he gets a lot of shit because a lot of his movies now just seem like he wants to go on vacation yeah and so he makes a movie in some far off place he wants to visit and the movie kind of comes secondary. That's kind of what this felt like too. Like Harmony Corinne just wanted to go make an Island somewhere and just hang out with Snoop Dogg and get high. And it ha- it has that feel of just like hanging out. It's a blast, dude. I really like where Harmony Corinne's career is. Oh, the last going. two have been his best. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Ever. He's just getting better yeah. with time. So there was that. And then I finally got around to seeing shoplifters. Oh yeah. And it was so good. Yeah, it's great. It, it would have been I, I know we had this episode <laughs> last time. <laughs> I feel like I, I should have watched it for that episode because it would have totally been in my top five from last year. It's so good. And it was so so heartwarming and touching on like what what is family? Is it the family you're born into or the community you create around yourself? And it's just beautifully shot, acted it's a really fantastic movie. Have you ever seen anything else from Coriata? No, but I'm interested in some of his other stuff because I know in this kind of what he does, like sort of melodrama and I guess touching on a lot of social issues. Yeah, a lot of like economic exploitation of lower class people and how they are just sort of like forgotten. Yeah. Once they're past the poverty line. There's this one really good one called Nobody Knows. Nobody Knows. Okay. Uh, it's about this like mom who just like leaves her kids for like long periods of time mm-hmm. and one time she just doesn't come back, oh, you know, shit. like sort of abandons them in this apartment and the kids just sort of like live in their own rot for months and like form this little society and turn the house into this little like shanty town for other kids who don't have parental guidance. Hmm. And yeah, I was thinking about that a lot during shoplifters, you know, cause they have this little like makeshift home for like 12 people. That's really in like a two person shack. And, uh, there's a lot of like just living just outside the periphery of like official acknowledgement they're kind of just living their lives in plain sight and, you know, shoplifting and pulling these like minor grifts and these small jobs, a little bit of sex work. There's some like stripping in it. Yeah. Uh, But they're just under the poverty line. So we're like, no one will even look at them in the eye and acknowledge them. And so they can go on and on for like years living like that. Yeah. And then when it's finally revealed what's, what's happening, then the state cares, Yeah, you know, but they really didn't care up until they figure out what's going on. I just want to highlight one scene that, Towards the middle of the movie, there's like two scenes in a row that really I thought were some of the best scenes from last year. There's one where the main, the patriarch of the family and his wife 
they have some alone time and he alludes to earlier they haven't had sex in a while and there's just a really tender scene of them eating noodles together in the way they kind of flirt and en- engage in sex it was just so beautifully done and then when the kids show up they have to like get dressed quickly and just so there's that and then right after it's kind of the central scene of the movie of them being together as a family because you know they've just had sex so they have this glow about them everyone's like really happy and there's a fireworks show and they're just a tight-knit family they go out on the porch and see the fireworks through their little crack in the trees and man that just like really got to me i thought that was beautifully done there's another really good sequence on the beach that's kind of similar too where they're Mm -hmm. like even though they're this makeshift family that's kind of like scrapped together they really try to reinforce traditional family roles for everybody like this is the grandmother's role this is the the wife and the husband's role and like the dad gives the son the talk they're really like doing their best to make like a traditional lifestyle out of this like scraps and scrapes from the corners of the yeah society i don't know it's really interesting yeah it's a beautiful movie but anyway what about you anything good lately I want to highlight more sex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went to Britannia. has those like classic movies on Sundays. Uh-huh. They played a Busby Berkeley musical. Um, are you familiar with those? No. Uh, they're from the 30s. And it's the classic old Hollywood choreography where like there's a geometric pattern to everyone's legs. Like, you know, the Rockettes kicking where they all right. kick in a chorus line. Busby Berkeley does this thing where everyone piles into a theater to watch a chorus line. And then what happens on the stage would be absolutely fucking impossible to happen in real life. Mm-hmm. But then everyone applauds as if they had just watched what was basically like a collective hallucination. So like any of those like bathing beauties scenes where like the camera's way from the ceiling looking down and everyone just sort of swirls in this like oh, yeah, kaleidoscope okay. image where everyone's like really in sync mm-hmm. in this like geometric way. Um, I had never seen one of these movies before. It's just something you see in clips of like the greatest movies of all time. AMC's yeah. top 100 or whatever. The one I saw was called 42nd Street uh, from 1933. It was his first major studio musical that he choreographed. And what I expected was that old Hollywood glamour and stuff. What I did not know to expect was that the movie would be so goddamn horny all the way through. Ooh. Uh, it has a fetish for legs in this like really overt way. Probably because that's all they could really show on the screen at the time. Right. This is at the very early stages of the Hayes Code. Um, and this movie's specifically pre code enforcement. So they um, are allowed to make a lot of sex jokes. Like, there's a lot of like open jokes about women landing roles through ca- like casting couch politics. And there's like some characters that are very overtly coded as gay mm-hmm. uh, in a way they would not have been able to get away with like five years later. But you can't show nude flesh still though. So what they can show is naked legs. So like they have the producers will line up all the chorus girls and be like, hike up your skirts, girls. Let's see what you're working with. And the way the camera shoots like gams from like the floor up is Mm -hmm. so just sweaty and horny in this like really (laughs) unexpected way. And it gets to the point where like the producer of the play is like a backstage musical where they're like putting on a final show for a producer um, Mm -hmm. during the great depression to like entertain the cash strapped folks in the uh, audience and also like, you know, let this producer retire. The guy who's funding it is just this like sweaty pervert. who's like leaning over in a seat and he's only there to look at gams. Uh, (laughs) And even when they get to like the Busby Berkeley payoff where there's this, this giant extravagant chorus line, all these twisting legs, Mm -hmm. it just seems like it's presenting bare legs in as many ways as it possibly can. There's this one, slide of the camera across the floor as if you were like sliding across a slip and slide between the legs of like 30 chorus girls. Oh yeah. And then the couple's just sort of like smiling cutesily at the end of the uh, tunnel. Um, it's just a very horny movie in a way I didn't expect. That's so funny. Cause I guess sex will just find a way. Yeah. I mean, even if it's <laughs> just legs, I mean, no, I've seen those choreographed routines in the pools and everything, yeah. but yeah, like you have never really seen a full movie. So this guy, that was kind of his thing. Yeah. Busby Berkeley is the choreographer and uh, he's kind of the auteur of the films. Like okay. the directors are not names you would recognize, but he made about five musicals for one movie studio in the thirties. I got like, you. A lot of the uh, context you'll read is like, 
oh, these were popular because people really wanted to see these extravagant productions during the Great Depression. And it's like, actually, they were really horny. Like, <laughs> like it, there's like a sex sells kind of like air to it that I didn't really get uh, without actually having watched it myself, you know? That's cool. Yeah. So that one's called 42nd Street. I also bought this Blu-ray restoration of a porno film called Flesh Pot on 42nd Street uh, from 1972. And this is from that, very much from that, like, era of New York we were talking about where there were just, like, porno arcades and, like, grind houses and right. uh, magazine shops everywhere. Wait, so it is an actual porn film? Yes. This guy, Andy Milligan, it was this gay man who directed a bunch of straight porn in the 70s um, and also directed a bunch of, like, horror films. And Flesh Pot on 42nd Street is his last movie from transitioning into horror full time. Mm-hmm. And you can tell in this movie that he is like disinterested in the porno part. A lot of the actors are from the theater scene, like off, off, off Broadway theater in New mm-hmm. York, like avant-garde theater. Um, it's all his friends from that scene. And a lot of them are gay and it's very obvious that they're gay, even in this like straight porn. So they have this like almost active disinterest in the main starlet, uh, who is the titular flesh pot. So is it more plot oriented yes. than if he's trying to get away from the porn? Yeah. What it ends up being is this woman is a sex worker who is kind of getting tired of like pulling off these like minor griffs and working on these like Johns. She's so bored with the sex. Like she's like checking her watch while getting head and like looking around the room to see where the wallet is to steal from. Once the guy <laughs> like, you know, tires himself out. And this like Prince Charming from Long Island is going to save her from this Manhattan Times Square lifestyle. And like he knows that she's a sex worker. She's not hiding anything from him, but he wants to marry her and like give her like Mm -hmm. a domestic life outside of it. And it becomes this like Circean melodrama because of that. And what's really interesting is she works all these like different Johns around the city, biding her time until she can marry this like Prince Charming guy. You know, she has to pay the rent. Uh, she also has a roommate um, who's a trans sex worker who is like kind of the comic relief for the film. Hmm. So there's a lot of just hanging out in like different dive bars and nasty street corners. So the movie has like a documentarian eye in that way too. But none of the sex when she's working is explicit in any way. She looks bored with it. The camera's kind of bored of it. Like it, there's no sex there. And then all of a sudden in the few scenes where she has sex with the Prince Charming guy, it's like full on penetration, like hardcore. Whoa. Just intruding on this like Circean cheap melodrama. That's, re- that's really interesting. I can't even say it's like a great film, but it's definitely really interesting. And because we live in this like weird time where like there's so much physical media of old films, like I have this on like a 4K restoration Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome. <laughs> uh, it's just really odd. The Criterion Collection is going to start putting out old porn. porn. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what Vinegar Syndrome is and Severn and all those other things. They have like nasty old horror and porn films. So the, the director, what did he, did he do anything of note horror film wise titles? I did not recognize and I can't recall now, but he has a couple more infamous ones. Did it make you like more interested in his work to kind of see yeah. what he does with an actual film? Especially since he has this like renegade handheld camera style. Like when the people go to fuck, he like climbs into bed with he, he, them. Like, gets in yeah, there. yeah. And uh, when he's driving around um, in a taxi down 42nd Street, he's filming people's faces and like different like business locations and stuff. So I don't know. He has this like kind of like stealing shots kind of feel to his stuff. And it's really grimy. That like run and gun. Yeah, exactly. You know, okay. And I really want to see how that would translate to like a slasher film or something, especially since he seems like disinterested in the sex here. So what if he was like really interested in the violence? I I don't really know, Hmm. but this is really just interesting to see like a melodrama with some moments of hardcore and then all these like gay caricatures, you know, intruding on this like straight porno. Uh, It's just a really interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff we've been watching for the last couple of weeks. So I kind of had to bring it up. We're about to talk about a whole lot more porno, some hardcore and some not hardcore, but named hardcore. Right. Uh, <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. I think some of the French porn frame from films from that era were exhilarating, uh, very passionate, full of, full of, uh, full of love, full of uh, humanity, full of poetry sometimes. Of course, it's not like a, a bunch of films. It's Some. maybe five or six specific mm. films. But those films uh, uh, brought the desire 
to, 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 to make this, this film about this topic. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And it was my turn this week because I'm the birthday boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Special boy. And I made you watch something I think stands out as one of my favorite films of the year. It's called Knife and Heart. Mm-hmm. It's a French film. It's set in the French gay porno scene of the late 70s. In Paris, this lesbian alcoholic films a bunch of male-on-male gay pornos. And she has what I would call a psychic ability. She gets these psychic visions in her head as she drives around. And then she recreates them in the porno Mm -hmm. almost as a way of like reinterpreting and processing these images she doesn't know what else to do with besides drinking herself to sleep every night. What starts happening is people are murdered on her set. A lot of her actors and collaborators start showing up dead around Paris. We see how they are killed. There's this masked killer with this leather mask and a fake fro wig Mm -hmm. that he wears. And he basically recreates freaking cruising he like cruises these like twinks in gay bars around the city gets them alone and then pulls out this dildo that turns into a knife and then stabs them a bunch of times with it it's very tawdry mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times the kills are framed in this jalo style and the movie has a lot of like jalo lighting and jalo editing s- sensibilities where like the gloved hand comes from like out of frame to like stab so the movie is very much a thriller that throws back to Jalo films of the 70s, but also is recontextualizing these sort of forgotten porno relics of the era as art. And a murder mystery ensues where we have to figure out why specifically are this lady's clients being killed, why the killer is masked and like hiding their identity and like why they have all these like sexual hangups and how these like psychic visions this lady's having of these like blind crows and these burning barns and mm-hmm. these like very specific images that keep recurring. Uh, one of them is this like specific boy who has similar hair to the killer and she keeps recasting actors that look a lot like him. And people keep commenting like, is this new guy that you brought in? Like the brother of the other, they're like twins. Um, well, yeah. And there's a, the meta element too of her. I think the movie is called homicide. Yeah. Great pun. Yeah. She's basically like trying <laughs> recreating the murders on camera, like you said, is kind of a way of, I don't know if it's exploiting what happened or to like cleanse something out of herself to try to figure out what happened. But it goes into this weird psychological area that I really thought was interesting. Yeah. And in that porno, she's like kind of um, processing her guilt too, because in homicide, she is the killer. You know, she is the one that's like causing all this like, terror so it's like her as the director yeah and in a real way she is causing these deaths because she knows that her cast and her collaborators are dying and she keeps making these gay porns anyway what did you think of knife and heart i thought it was really good i thought what i enjoyed was first of all the score by m83 was fantastic yeah i also thought it really captured that that argento aesthetic really well with the lighting and like you talk about some of the camera shots, I also really appreciated. it seemed to have a lot of De Palma influence with some really unique camera movements. I thought it was really beautiful to look at and listen to. The one thing that it suffers from is what a lot of these kind of movies do is the plot to me sort of meanders and sort of loses steam about three quarters of the way through, which is very Jalo, like very all Jalo gets tired, you know? Yeah. And so I couldn't tell, is it trying to, is it staying true to the form? And that's kind of what these movies entail, or is it just like a flawed plot? Well, where it sags is when I'm guessing what you mean is like when she goes into the country, goes into the countryside, that was kind of a slog for me. I would just, cause it just, as it's starting to get really good with her making homicide and, the kills are ramping up. There's all this energy. And then she goes to the countryside and it sort of loses a lot of steam for me. And then it regains a little bit of it back. Oh, the, by the I end. love the conclusion. No, I, yeah, the yeah. climax was great in the theater yeah. and then the end credits are beautiful. Right. But it had all this momentum. And then there's a section of about 20, 30 minutes where it loses a lot of steam. So that was my only really real criticism 
of the film. Yeah. But no, beyond that, like it nails that aesthetic perfectly. And like you said, recontextualizes it in a very interesting way. I think a lot of Jolly, like when you're watching it, it's not the mystery that's interesting. Like it's like how the murders are framed on screen and like the visual aesthetic of it and the, the prog rock soundtracks from all these things. Yeah. That's what's exciting. And then, you know, figure out the whodunit part is never that exciting. And when she goes out to the country, she's basically unraveling all of these like you know, psychic visions she's been having. And these like, what is she really recreating in these movies? Yeah. It's like wrapping up these plot threads. Right. And plot is never going to be the most interesting thing in these like stylized horror films. But there's some weird details in that country trip. Like the fucking fellow psychic with like the bird hand. Oh, the bird hand was, that was great. That was a highlight. And then she goes to this graveyard where there's practically a ghost like wandering around, like mourning their son. And I don't know. There's just a lot of like interesting, quiet details in that moment where, where I agree, like the energy's gone, but it's not boring like to me. I think there's like enough weird stuff where you're still like, what the fuck is even happening? I don't I just wanted more. Like my favorite scene was where the main character goes to like a lesbian burlesque show. Yeah. And they're one of them is dressed like a bear. And, you know, she kind of has this toxic relationship with her ex. And I thought that was really powerful. The bear, like devouring love devours all that sort of yeah. thing. The imagery of that, of just like, it's like a drag act, right? Yeah, it was like a drag act, but there's like the stage makeup where she's clawing at her and the blood. That I thought was the best scene or my favorite scene in the I movie. Also like the other lesbian bar scene where she's like spying on her ex dancing yeah. with a new person and it just has that pure um did you see climax from this year? The uh, new Gaspar Noé. Uh, it has that like pure like pulsing like neon just dance party horror vibe and I'm always going to be on the hook for that. This director like this is to me is a huge improvement for him. I the only other film I saw from him, uh, his name's Jan Gonzalez, was uh, We Are the Night, uh, which has been on Netflix for a while, and it's this like stage play kind of movie about an orgy, and all these people gather in this like you know apartment sized living room going to have an orgy, and it has this kind of dreamlike quality of this movie, but nothing really happens in it, and it gets really frustrating to me. M eighty three did the soundtrack to that as well. Oh really? But this feels like a huge improvement. And if you order the Blu-ray, uh, it comes with a 20-minute long short film called like, The Island, and mm-hmm. that's also excellent. And all this was reminding me specifically of my favorite movie from last year, which was The Wild Boys. Yeah. And the guy who directed The Wild Boys, his only acting credit is as the cinematographer in this film. So he plays the camera operator in all the gay pornos in Knife and Heart. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know. Okay. What's his name? I know the character you're talking about. It's like Bertrand Mancini, I think, or something like that. And I feel like this studio, the two of them, I've looked it up since, it's called Altered Innocence. I feel like they're building this like new queer horror canon where it's like very sensual. It's not very pathologizing, I don't think, about like, you know, being queer makes you a killer. The only thing I sort of picked up on was, and it's kind of a, trope of these kind of with the AIDS epidemic. And this is a pre AIDS story though, right? Right. Late seventies, but late seventies. So it's like right before the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. That's just something I'm kind of honestly sort of tired of seeing in these sort of movies. It feels done to death, but I I was going to ask you what you thought of the actual, something I was kind of picking up on is like, even though it obviously seems like a celebration of queerness, it also shies away from sex in a, and a weird way. Where I give the Wild Boys the edge is like that movie's very hardcore pornographic. For the yeah, for this being set in like hardcore gay porn, you don't really see any of that. It's all shot very you know methodically, where you don't see any unsimulated yeah anything going on. This isn't Stranger by the Lake where you like see like. Yeah, you know, unsimulated sex, and that that to me like kind of felt like a cop out a little bit. 
So I, I didn't know what your thoughts on that were. I mean, if I'm going to be like superficially frank about it, like if that had happened, I probably would rate this movie even higher. But I don't think it's anyone's obligation to have to have unsimulated no, sexual no, contact. No, no, of course not. And it's not like the movie's not vulgar. Like there's extended scenes where people are engaging in activity, even if it's slightly obscured. And it's being discussed. Like the gay actors are being directed to like, oh, move your hand over there. Or like they'll call in the mouth, quote unquote, who's like a fluffer who like, yeah, very weird character. But it was just an interesting contrast to a movie we're going to talk about later. Right. That seems much more of a provocation to like mainstream audiences taste. Yeah. And this one feels like it's trying to fit more into a more palatable Thing for audiences and even if you're going to frame this with the wild boys as like the start of a new company for altered innocence i mean the wild boys commits to the like sexual yeah vulgarity a little more than this one does but i don't know there's enough like sensuality and enough yeah. like discussion of sex and it doesn't like it doesn't really avert its eye it just doesn't like get doesn't explicit focus on yeah, yeah. And the island, the the short film that's paired with it, um, does have on screen erections. That's basically what we're saying is missing. There's like, there's like a, a mainstream like aversion to erect penises. Yeah. And this don't. movie doesn't include them, um, which is kind of weird for. I a just gay thought porn that was movie. weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing. I agree. But again, these are like minor little quibbles. Right. And I, w- I will say, I don't know if you've rewatched it, but the problem I had that was like a quibble was like. The same thing that happens in a lot of Jalo films. You get these like flashes of weird images, like birds flapping their wings or like <laughs> a fire. Right. You're like, what the fuck does that mean? And by the end of the movie, you do get an answer, like how that all ties in. And watching it a second time, I was more into like the psychic visions part. Cause I was like, Oh, I know what that story is. Like now that the mystery's out of the way, I'm not like scratching my head as to what actually happened here. It's like, Oh, I can enjoy how that plays into the overall plot. Right. Although that is the fun of watching it for a first time is that bewildered, like, yeah, like what the what? hell is going on? <laughs> but you sound like you remember back at the end. Like once right. you figured out, you're like, oh yeah, that's what that image meant way back then. It's something you get on the second go round. You're like, oh, okay. I, I see how this fits in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe spoil yourself on it before you watch it the first time. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie that's like more interesting for its uh, images and it's like aesthetics than it is for, you know, the mystery. The plot details. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think people may be surprised by the film. We didn't show, the obviously, the rough, explicit sex stuff in the movie, and people may be shocked Don't by you this. think somebody going to see a movie called Hardcore would be kind of braced before they walked in? Well, they should be, and that's the, what, you know, that term is an inside porno business term, hardcore. So, what movie did you bring up for this porno discussion? Well, as you know, I'm a huge Paul Schrader fan, and there's one film of his that I have not watched, and I've always wanted to. It's Hardcore. Uh, it's from 1979. Stars uh, George C. Scott. He plays this like fundamentalist Calvinist. Calvinist, yeah. New Dutch Reform New, Christianity. Yeah. I don't know what it is, except that every Paul Schrader movie I watch, it feels like it comes up. When I was reading a little bit of his bio, he was raised in that church. So this is like a very autobiographical film. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, his young daughter goes on a mission trip out to California and she goes missing and he hires a private detective played by one of my favorite actors from that period. Peter Boyle. Boyle. He plays this like really skeezy. You could tell this guy's into some shit and he does a little research, some digging. He comes back and reveals that his daughter is in the hardcore porn scene in LA. How does he reveal it to him? Oh, by uh, just showing him the film, the Super 8, and what, definitely one of the best scenes in this movie. It's just gut-wrenching. He takes him to a little theater, and you just see the clips of George C. Scott kind of watching through his fingers as this porn scene is playing out. Just screaming, turn it off. Turn it off. Which I'm upset. This is the first time I've seen this movie as well. And I have seen that movie memed to death, that scene. Like, out of context, they'll play, like, 
I don't know, the Cats trailer that came out this right. week. Everyone's like freaking out. Yeah. And they'll cut back to George C. Scott saying, like, turn it off in horror. So I always kind of assumed it was like the climax of the film or something like that. But it's pretty early on. And it's, like you said, gut-wrenching. So I was kind of like, I wish it hadn't been memed before I saw it. Like, yeah. I, I wish I had seen it kind of pure because it's a really affecting moment. It really So that kind of starts him on this journey out to L.A. to go into the depths. Like, it, it's kind of like a... Dante's Inferno <laughs> situation. He's going into the layers of hell deeper and deeper into this like hardcore porn world. And he gets into the, like the bondage and the snuff films and he's going deep to try to get his daughter out. And so it's kind of a basic plot, but what I really loved and I really, really love this. Me movie. too. I thought it was fantastic. It's one of the best movies I've seen this year. What, I feel like Paul Schrader does now that I've seen a good chunk of his movies is like, he's all about these characters that have morals and ethics and virtue and strong beliefs. And then kind of testing how far they'll go to uphold that belief. And this is like a perfect example of that. You have this puritanical, he's just a very straight laced guy that's now having to rub elbows with porn stars and with pimps and prostitutes and that journey that takes him like deep into this world, it's really mesmerizing. And what's great too, there's lots of shots of, you know, him going into these neon lit clubs. And a lot of times the lighting is bright red. It's like, he's literally going into hell to get his daughter out. There's that wonderful sequence um, at the climax where he like has a fight in this like sex dungeon and they start fighting through the like walls. Cause they're basically like play sets, right? Like it's for different fantasies. There's like a, a biker garage and like a, uh, you know, dentist's office and things. And they just like fight through the walls and it becomes this like hell world where they're just like bursting through different realities. And it's all this like cheap, tawdry bullshit. Yeah. And it's also kind of tearing down the artifice of pornography itself to, yeah. you know, you watch something that's set in a dungeon and it's really it's a play set. Yeah. That scene also is a great shot. The climax ends in San Francisco and... He literally, he parks his car on this like very steep decline and he's fighting this dude down the street. And it's like, they're again, they're literally going into hell. I've never seen that before, which you would think in San Francisco, they would use the hills this way. where like, someone's in a fist fight and they're just rolling down someone the down the hill. hill. I, I don't know if it's like an insurance thing. It's like really not safe to do that, but it looked really cool. It did. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a another interesting... Actually, the most interesting kind of character moments in the film, uh, George C. Scott finds this girl that works in like this club that knows where his daughter might be. And the second half of the film is them kind of going on this journey. She's helping him find his daughter. And the best dialogue in the film comes from them kind of debating their beliefs or like trying to understand each other. He explains Calvinism to her, even though we couldn't recall the exact phrasing just it's, now. It's crazy. Yeah. And she just looks at him like, that sounds really messed up and sad. And he's like, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> he said, yeah. And he says something to the effect of like, you have to be in it to understand. And she's like, well, isn't that like so many other, right. Like porn or anything else. And there's another really great bit of dialogue when they're on this like pier and, she says something, I, this isn't the exact line, but it's like, you don't enjoy sex or you don't like sex so much that you don't have it. I don't like sex, so I don't care who I have it with. And so it's like, they are kind of linked in this way, but have totally very radical different ways that they've dealt with. Like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of stuff, like, and her also looking to him as like a father figure and then at the end he kind of has to abandon her for his real daughter all that character work was i thought that was great and i do want to spoil the end of this movie yeah it's from the 70s yeah yeah also like it's what makes it good he is going down into these like depths of hell uh as he sees it and what the movie starts reinforcing is that the porn scene is what he makes of it like there are these like innocuous surface level like professional productions where people are getting paid for their labor to have sex on camera and it's just all in the up and up and he's like no my daughter wouldn't do this willingly obviously she was forced into it i'm gonna go even deeper to see like the kinds of people who would force people to do this and the lower and lower he goes 
he finds what he's looking for. He finds snuff films. He finds like human trafficking where he looks for it. And she is hanging out with one of these shady dudes. I have some theories on that too. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear it. But when he does finally have his, find his daughter at the climax and has that like a heart to heart with her, she's like, I wasn't forced into this. I chose to leave it because you can't relate to me because of your conservative beliefs. And you suck as a dad too. You were never there for me. You have no emotional payback for me. And I've finally found my chosen family. It just happens to be this porn world. And it breaks down makes the movie i would still enjoy this obviously because it's like a milieu i enjoy but something about that like just deflating of this like masculine i'm gonna save this like damsel from this like porno world adventure for him to be deflated that way in that moment and the movie has this very genuine like reflection on like yeah i've failed as a dad that is really effective what i thought was interesting about that scene was um apparently Paul Schrader did not like this movie. He does not think that this is like nearly his best work. It's the only other movie I've liked for him besides cat people. And I'm sure that he also disavows that one as well. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But he was saying apparently this, the way he wanted to end it originally was he just finds his daughter dead. And the studio was like, no, that's not a good ending. And so the actress he had hired to play the daughter, they were like, no, you need to have this, scene at the end where they had this conversation and apparently she was not like a trained actress at all. And I knew that going in. And so watching it, she is like kind of, I guess you would say a bad actress, but what I really, I thought it actually added more to her performance because she kind of has this blank expression where it seems like she's almost dead. Yeah. She's like drugged out and like tired. And so it added this complexity to her, character like is she doing this on her free will or is she just so coked out of her mind she doesn't know what to think so i i thought that actually her lack of acting in a weird way made that moment even more effective for me yeah i don't know that moment felt very naturalistic and like not what i expected out of this film because schrader obviously has like an intense interest in sex even um first reformed last year i didn't particularly like that movie but the two scenes that I really did like a lot were the levitation sequence and the ending. And both of those are very much hinged on this priest having this like unconsummatable attraction to this woman. Um, And it's like tearing him up inside on this like existential level. And it's almost like he like hallucinates these like uh, temptations in these like really grand ways. And that's when the movie like comes alive to me. Yeah. This did feel very similar to first reformed. I kept thinking like, finding all these links between those two movies and uh cat people as well. Like mm-hmm. that's a movie about incest mm-hmm. and like incestual desire and how unavoidable it is. And I just really like horny Schrader. Like, yeah, <laughs> I liked autofocus too. Oh, I loved autofocus. Yeah. So good. I guess because of his conservative Christian background, he has this like pull towards sex where he like hates himself for it. Yeah. Uh, to the point where apparently he's, even going so far as like disavowing the films that like really give into it. Yeah. Um, and I think it makes him an interesting filmmaker in that like conflict. Given that history, that's why I thought first reformed was kind of a perfect, if it is his last movie, it's kind of a perfect way to end it. Cause it really touches on everything that he's been getting at his entire career. Yeah. And in the same way, like this felt like to me, it is like peak Schrader. Cause he's really like telling the exact kind of stories he loves to tell. And he's like, leaning in on the sex stuff and the guilt and the Christian background. So and it's just, it's really a fascinating movie. And when climate change ends the world in 30 years, he'll just like look right from like <laughs> ending on first reform. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to mention the snuff stuff a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if this is intended in the text, but from what I was saying, like the way he keeps finding what he's looking for He's like, oh, I got to find an even scummier scumbag than this. And he keeps finding like lower and lower rungs. Like, of course, he's eventually going to find snuff films because that is like the end of that rope. Right. But do you think it was an actual snuff no, film? No, I don't. Yeah. And because that has been debunked so many times, people don't make snuff films. No. It's been an urban legend that's been like revived so many times. I do believe these like porno makers are making these like realistic gore pictures to make it look like snuff films. So these like really dirty freaks can jerk off in this like basement. Isn't that such a bizarre like blurring of the lines between like a horror movie right. and pornography? 
I don't that's like fascinating to me that a group of men would gather under the assumption that they're actually watching someone get murdered when really it's just a production like a horror movie or anything else. And because we're watching a fictional film, there's no telling for us what's real and what's not. Like we watch a woman get her throat slit on a Super 8, but we don't know if in the reality of hardcore, if that's an actual snuff film or if it's like in real life where those are all staged. I find it just interesting that like he keeps looking for like worse scummy stuff and he keeps believing when he finds it and then believing there's worse things beyond it. Right. And if the original ending where he like find his daughter dead, it'd still be a good movie and I'd still be really into it, but it wouldn't have hit me as genuinely engaging with the themes than in this case where like, He's only seeing evil where it's just a business that his daughter happened to go into. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting take. And also, I think with that original ending, you wouldn't have that scene of, you know, the girl that's been helping him find his daughter and the kind of this moment where he looks for her in the crowd and she walks away. She realizes, like, she has no place in his life. Right. And then, and then also, like, I loved at the very end. So the movie opens with this kind of jangly, like, country tune. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're like... At home in Ohio or At Christmas Iowa. time. And then the movie ends on that too after him and his daughter leave to assumingly go back home. But it's like, how could it be the same ever again? Hopefully it's not. Hopefully he learns his lesson and like actually engages with her on like an emotional level. I mean, he recognizes like, I failed you because I've been socialized to not show emotional vulnerability to people, even the ones I'm closest to. I don't have that tool in my toolbox. Right. Uh, hopefully he can break out of that pattern now that he's like been put through the ringer, put himself through the ringer. But from what you've seen of his character, I don't think he will. All he does is violently outburst and smash people's faces in and act in this like very macho brash way. Yeah. I will say the moment where he slaps the, I forget her name, the woman that's helping him find his daughter Nikki or something. Nikki. Yeah. yeah. That's really when his character like, cross the line to like you're now the abusive honestly it was before that for me too it was like when he beats in the porno actor's face with a shower head right the way he deals with the problem is like so traditionally macho in this like really not helpful way and he can't see how that doesn't actually line up with his values that he proclaims to have so really great movie i really love this one me too and one more point before we move on to what thing i really like about it is that I watch a lot of these like porno related films. I'd say Boogie Nights is like one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time. And that's kind of got me into this like Rialto report flesh pot on 42nd street, kind of like milieu. Most of that stuff was made in New York city on the East coast. And most of the documentation of what this world looked like is very New York centric. And it was just really cool to see old porno theaters and things in LA in San Francisco instead. Like that was a really interesting this perspective was these weren't sets or anything. This no. is actually what the scene looked like in the late seventies. And this is when like films like deep throat were sort of threatening to make porno go mainstream. So they were kind of everywhere and characters comment on that. They're like the term hardcore is, you know, an industry term and uh, this stuff, you can just get whatever you want. Now it's all legal. It's out in the open and the movie goes and finds those spots where it's out in the open and sort of documents them. Um, and I'm used to seeing that on the opposite end of the country. So this is like an interesting spin on it for me. Definitely. So that was really great. And I made you watch a movie from last year that is so abrasive that I have no <laughs> idea how you reacted to it. It's called The Misandrists. And it's from this director named Bruce LaBruce. Bruce Le- <laughs> And Bruce LaBruce has been around since the 90s. People were trying to group him in with like Todd Haynes and um, another like few directors of the new queer movement. But he was more into the queer punk scene. Yeah, he wanted to be a queer core director. There's a lot of like queer bands from the early 90s that were called queer core, like Huggy Bear and I don't Mm. know, a few other groups. He is a punk filmmaker. More so than most directors, he is someone who has committed fully his entire career to the early John Waters style of just like complete shock and hardcore porn there is gay porn in his films you know you know you were saying uh knife and heart sort of pulls back shies from, away from that this is not bruce LaBruce does not shy away from that all of his movies have like gay porno text to them this happened to be one of the first ones i saw and it also is in a subtext that i really 
appreciate in general. So this is probably why it stood out to me as one to talk about for this episode. The Misandrists, as the title suggests, is this community of militant feminists that live in Germany instead of Germany. <laughs> I, I love, there's so many little touches like that. Yeah. Instead of a man at the end of prayers that say a woman or uh, down with the patriarchy. Yeah. Down, 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 down. with the patriarchy. <laughs> uh, that song plays while women are making out in classrooms for, mm-hmm. I don't know, a good three or four minutes. So they're this militant far left resistance group in late nineties, Germany, and they're going to overthrow the government and the patriarchy. They're sort of like in training. And the way they're going to fund this revolution is through mass producing gay porn um, amongst themselves. The movie is set up in this way that's really uncomfortable in the first like 15 minutes before you sort of get the vibe because it feels very turfy, very trans exclusionary. They are very focused on cis women's bodies and like removing any references to male anatomy from their like revolutionary rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And then what you start to understand as you're watching it is there's like non-binary people, um, intersex people, trans people living amongst them that the matriarch character is not aware of. Well, and then the way she violently deals with those. Yeah. I think it was hard for me in the beginning, like you're saying to kind of understand the politics of the movie and what was it trying to say but it's very clear by the end that it is this anti-turf, yeah, more accepting of trans people in the community. Right. And this is how their community is disrupted. There's the intersex and trans people sort of living undercover among their midst. There's a cop who is undercover amongst their midst. And there's other cops looking for this man who's escaped. And one of the characters is holding him in the basement mm-hmm. uh, under the matriarch's nose. People have all these secrets that are they can't hold off forever because the woman of the house, the grandmother, wants to start making lesbian porn to fund their revolution. And there's very lengthy talks about how porn is a revolutionary act, which I think is why I thought of this when we were talking about like porno films. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be that interesting to talk about Boogie Nights on this episode, right? Like everyone's seen Boogie Nights. No. I think the yeah. misandrist is more and like hardcore and I think these are like little less seen films. Well, this one in particular, I think it's a provocation. It's very political. So there's a lot more to dig into the, like, what is it actually saying about pornography in a way that even some of the other movies we talked about today, I don't think really get into like the politics of it in the way that this one does. And this movie gives voice to political far left revolutionary ideas at length. Like there's this very surface level, some of it's titillation, some of it's like shocking pornographic imagery, but that's grabbing your attention. And then characters voice these like political screeds that are like weirdly genuine. Like someone will say something like it's time to reconcile your revolutionary beliefs with your sexual politics. And like, there's a lot of like far left ideology and like extreme socialism, rhetoric that like creeps into this movie that should be, you know, goofy over the top John Waters stuff. And it has a sort of like genuine political bent to it. Once you dig in a little bit, Bruce, Le- Bruce, it seemed like he's a far leftist that's criticizing the left. He can make some film that's mocking the right or something, but it's like, he's trying to find the disagreements in the leftist movement and basically try to present his side of, cause that is a big thing is like the turf anti-turf, I think he's doing two things there. The turf side, he is parodying how over the top, like cis body oriented feminist ideology is. He's like making it so ridiculous that it's cartoonish. But at the same time to do that, he has to parody how the right sees militant feminism. And this very over the top could not exist world where this camp of women live together and are like, building this revolution to like emasculate the world uh literally it's like the movie is visualizing how the right sees feminists like when they hear the word feminist they picture this like militant revolutionary idea a whole bunch of commies that are like quoting marx and yeah and when the movie shows that how the right sees it it's both ridiculous and kind of badass this is a really cool community, except it has this like turf cancer at the center of it. So it's like both making fun of 
turf ideology and it's making fun of like how the right sees feminists and it has somewhere in there this like genuine political rhetoric and it's really hard to like discern what's what in that soup the part i thought was really telling was the mother finds out that this prisoner is under their basement or whatever and they the cis man the cis man and he's quoting all the right stuff like he is on their team he's saying the exact ideology he believes it strongly he's speaking to them as comrades but they're like that's good but we still need to cut off your penis <laughs> because to them men are the pigs of the world they're the cops of the planet which is i don't know really funny because it's so over the top and it's such like an exaggerated viewpoint but it's also kind of true we are kind of the pigs of the planet but see it seemed to be saying like if men believe strongly and they are your comrades and they're on your team then you shouldn't exclude them because we need all the people we can get in this movement while also saying like yeah they, and they are kind of the problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's a little like complicated and he holds views that are contrary to what they want to accomplish too like He's like, yeah, your revolution is not as important as the bigger economic one. Your gender revolution comes second to the economic revolution. And they're like, actually, no, fuck that. It's they're the tied same in thing. to yeah. the same thing. It's intersectional. Yeah. And this movie's very intersectional in a way you might not get when you first start watching it. Like the first 20 minutes, it feels pretty turfy until you catch on to the tone. And then you're like, realize it's actually mocking, mocking that exact it. point. Yeah. And even so, when they do the gender, usually I'd call it gender affirmation surgery, but in this case, it's not willingly. So gender reassignment surgery on this man, it's not shown in a fun or pretty light. It's this very old documentary Dude, footage of a nasty gender affirmation surgery. I actually cursed your name when that was funny. <laughs> I was like, fuck, Brandon. Why did he make me watch this? I, like, I did warn you, right? Yeah, I know you weren't, but you know, I had to watch it. Oh, man, that was rough. It's rough. That was really rough. And earlier in the film, when the two girls who are tasked to make gay porn to fund the revolution, they sneakily watch male-on-male gay porn, like mask gay porn. And that stuff is not your, like, run-of-the-mill vanilla gay sex. It is, like, fisting rosebuds well it's like aversion therapy yeah to see how disgusting men are they're gonna watch them as hardcore piss play yeah gay pornography oh man two things that cannot leave my mind (laughs) (laughs) are the surgical footage that's um, rough i I, I agree it's rough but also this poor man he gets this giant drill dildo it's huge going into his ass i assume that's consensual I know it's consensual, but then they show his ass afterwards and it's just hanging like loose meat. It's just gaping. And I'm just like, an asshole should not be that big and loose. Did I give you enough of a warning about this? I'm really sorry if I didn't. I mean, you just said, <laughs> oh, there's some explicit sex, which doesn't really do it. But by justice. my taste, like it's really explicit. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and by my taste, I was just like, what? Never would I <laughs> have done this on purpose. Yeah. I would never seek this out. And but. even when they make their lesbian porn to like fund the revolution, like that stuff gets really vulgar too, where like they're shoving eggs and like fruit inside of themselves. And it gets almost like medical, how gynecological this like imagery is. It's not necessarily sexy, but they are inserting things into each other. And it's funny because it starts off in this like sort of male fantasy, like pillow fight where they're like throwing feathers everywhere. And like we're in this like wife beaters. Yeah. And then once they're actually having sex, it's like not for male pleasure. It's like this very grotesque. I don't say grotesque. That's not right. But it's very like extreme. It's not for beginners. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to watch like more and more Bruce LeBruce stuff because someone who's been doing this for like 20, 30 years, making this like outsider art and he just keeps it explicit like this. I just find this really fascinating. Yeah. I, no, I love his punk aesthetic and I was interested too in kind of finding some other movies of his to watch. And there was one that came out, I think it was a movie he made right before this where a guy that's working in a nursing home falls in love with one of the patients. So it's about like geriatric sex and it's supposed to be like a little more away from the explicit pornography and more like a tender love story that sounds interesting to me to see how he would approach that but even that's not something you see on the screen ever like geriatric sex no and earlier we were talking about how even knife and heart strays away from like erect cocks and like john waters film a dirty shame was censored 
as NC-17 for having a flaccid dick in it. And Knife and Heart has no erect penises in it. And then you have this one filmmaker who's making really raunchy stuff. I, I, the only other filmmaker I can think of who's done this is The uh, Stranger by the Lake, where it's like unsimulated gay sex. And people are like afraid of erect dicks on the screen. But see, Stranger by the Lake was a little more... I love that film. Yeah, and I liked it too. And it, it felt more poetic in a way. Like this feels really punk, like... I want to fuck with you. It's tongue in cheek for sure. Yeah. Film is like a provocation blurring that line. Cause even though there is actual pornography in it, it's still a film, at least by my standard and the way it uses it, it's like part of the story. It's part of their kind of education. So it wasn't just in there for the sake of being in there. It, It was part of the story is what I'm saying. How do you feel about this movie as like a delivery system for political rhetoric? Because there are some, like, lengthy monologues where it's like, well, that's some real, like, Marxist ideology you're, like, slipping in there. Yeah, well, as as someone that falls more on that side of the political spectrum, I, I like hearing people elaborate on that. I feel like you don't even see that in movies. No. The same way that you don't see, like, erect dicks. Like, I feel like that's just as taboo. Uh, yeah. So, it, like, to have one movie do both is, like, really, like, alarming in a, in a good way. But, but you know what I... What I actually liked about this movie the most than anything else we talked about is the humor in it. Like when it first started, I was like, oh man, like this bad acting, really stilted dialogue. And then, you know, a few minutes in, I'm like, oh, they're doing the John Waters, the campy, yeah, so it's bad on purpose sort of thing. Then I kind of got on the movie's level and its tone. And then I thought there were a lot of parts that were just very funny. I don't know, as political as this movie sounds, like yeah. it has a really good sense of humor about itself. Oh, yeah. And that that's what I really appreciated. And I think the revolution has to be sort of entertaining. <laughs> like you're not gonna like get people to listen to your Marxist screeds if it's all very serious. Uh, and this movie has like shocking John Waters style humor, and it has like over the top pornographic extremism, and it also has like lengthy Marxist thoughts. And even more so than any other movie we've talked about today, I would say even more so than The Wild Boys, this frames pornography as a revolutionary act and a tool for like political insurrection, which makes sense because Bruce LaBruce has been doing that like his whole career, trying to change political thought and political discussion through porn. But it's just very like rare to see that expressed so explicitly. Oh, it's like a manifesto. Exactly. The whole movie felt like it was like his personal political manifesto. And it's just like all like far left political manifestos. It's hard to access. Like you have to subscribe to some channel. I can't even remember on Amazon to watch it or buy like a $30 Blu-ray directly from Bruce LaBruce. But Honestly, I want to fund his movies, so maybe I should buy a hard copy of it because I've watched it three times in the past year. When he's also been around for a long time, I was reading he did all these like zines in Canada and like he's written books and yeah, it really seems to have a lot of output in this. I don't know. I haven't seen any other other of his work, but this does feel like a manifesto. Even this movie was a dual release with some other festival film that like footage of it is included in uh, the Misandrists, like he made two movies last year that were like simultaneous releases. Hmm. He's he's not out of ideas. He's still working very hard. And when I um, posted a review of this film, he like retweeted it. So like, nice. He's got that kind of Matt Farley on the ground, um, cool feel to his like. He, he's just like some guy making like really out there movies and has been doing it forever. And you gotta have to respect that. I mean, it really was one of the strangest things I've seen, and or not not strange, just. I haven't quite seen a movie that put all those things together. The leftist political stuff, the actual hardcore pornography, the surgical stuff, the campy John Waters. Like I haven't seen anything that really came close to that vibe. I really want to know what John Waters thinks of Bruce LaBruce too. Like I really want to read him comment on him. Yeah. I mean the, the humor and the dialogue was very much in the, John Waters camp. And that's my favorite director of all time. So yeah, I don't know. I need to hear more. Well, anyway, this is a treat for me. All three of these films are like things I loved. Uh, Knife and Heart, The Misandrists, and Hardcore were all Yeah, it was an interesting trio of films. Very Brandon episode, but I don't mind being well, selfish. Well, it's your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next episode will be um, 
me and Brittany talking about crocodiles and alligators because of crawl. Oh, <laughs> did you see it yet? <laughs> yeah, it was, I saw it yesterday. It was really fun. Cool. Do you have anything else to add about pornography and this like seedy underworld we've tapped into here today? No, I mean, I think we pretty much covered it. Yeah. Unless, is there anything you want to add? No, I just want more movies to be sex oriented. I don't know. We're living in this world where like Disney owns so many like huge properties and the top five films of the year this year were so far, I'm sure the Lion King will add it to the top six at this point are Disney owned properties and they have a very squeaky clean, like safe returns kind of like thing. And because they just bought Fox, they own things like X-rated films, like beyond the Valley of the dolls and Maya Breckenridge. Mm -hmm. It's increasingly difficult to get films like this in theaters like even a film like Hardcore, I think would be very hard to get to nationally distributed theaters in 2019. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching, I was thinking about Eight Millimeter. Right. Do you see that Nick Cage? I actually haven't seen that, Joel but I'm Schumacher. aware of it. Yeah. It's a pretty blatant ripoff. Even that plays it safe in a in a way that's different from Hardcore. Right. And I think a movies and the last few episodes we've talked about sex. We talked about the '80s um, erotic thrillers from Adrian Lynn. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Border and a couple other things like that. I feel like there's another one before that. But I feel like eroticism and sexuality are like disappearing from like widely distributed American films. That's why it was like very exciting to go see Gaspar Noe's Climax on the big screen this year and like a couple other films like that. And I just want people to support people like Bruce LaBruce who are still making these things and uh, altered innocence who did the wild boys and knife and heart. Like we need to send money to the way of the few provocateurs who are like willing to keep horniness in the movies and stop going to see 50 shades of gray and things that are kind of pandering to the honestly go see 50 shades of gray, but don't go see the lion King. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Don't see the lion King remake. Go out of your way to see horny things on the big screen. So People know that there's an interest in them. Um, it's a very basic part of human um, relationships that, you know, deserve to be represented in cinema. Hmm. And I really like seeing porn and genre films mix because there is a lot of overlap, whether or not you want to acknowledge it. Yeah. There you go. That's my <laughs> that's my two cents. Uh, we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Turn it off!